What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. On this episode of the Wedgecast, I'm hanging out with Pablo Giacopelli. He is just an amazingly interesting human being. We actually met for the first time smoking a cigar in Jerusalem, Israel. We swapped stories, drank a little whiskey, and just enjoyed each other's company. He is a man of faith. He's a man who is a professional tennis player, professional tennis coach. He's an author of a couple books. He's an international speaker and just is an amazing amazing man. So when I first met him, I thought, what a perfect guest to have as um, somebody on the podcast. So Pablo, thanks a ton for being a guest on the show. And I hope everybody listening enjoyed it just as much as I did. Pablo, thanks for being a guest on the Wedgecast. It's good to be with you, Matt. Thank you for having me. So brief backstory. It's funny how worlds cross and people get connected. I was in Jerusalem with a friend and we were a part of a, a group of about 30 people on a, a Holy Land tour. And one of the guys in the group, we happened to be walking by a cigar shop and he says, do you smoke cigars? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, all right, perfect. Let's go, let's go, uh, you know, smoke a cigar at one of the nights. And so we decided to go. And he told me about this, this group called the Holy Smokes. And he reached out and he said, this guy named Pablo is in Tel Aviv and wants to come meet up with us. And so you drive, I don't know, how far is Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Uh, I don't know, about 45 minutes. So you drive 45 minutes to come meet up with a couple strangers. We smoke cigars, have a little bit of whiskey, and just have an awesome conversation. And you have this incredible, amazing story. So I thought, what a perfect person to have as a guest in the podcast. So this is great. <laughs> yeah, that was a good evening. I remember it well. So Pablo, tell us your story, man. 
Okay, with pleasure. Uh, so I was born in South America, uh, in Peru. Um, I am uh, the son of two Argentinian parents who happened to be in Peru working. Uh, my father was there because uh, there was no work in Argentina. My mother, because she followed her dad, who won a very famous uh, court case against a president called Perón, which was Evita's husband all those years ago. Uh, and therefore, because of the fact that he won this case, he had to leave Argentina. My parents meet up after a, a while of courting, they get married. Um, I'm born, uh, I'm the firstborn of the family uh, of two. Then there is my sister who came nine years later. Um, and I was born into a, to a father that had several frustrated uh, sports dreams, uh, due mainly to his mother not allowing him to pursue them. So he was, uh, he, was a, he was wanting to be a uh, pursue sports, but his mom just wasn't wasn't having any of it. Yes, uh, he was very good soccer player uh, in Argentina, and one of the main teams that is still around today, Estudiantes de la Plata, wanted to take him as a, a prodigy. Who they were going to basically groom to become a professional footballer, and when. He was offered that. He went home, told his mother, and his mother said, absolutely, he was not going to do that. Then uh, the Athletics Federation of Argentina saw him running uh, 100-meter dash. Very, very fast kid. Very, very athletic. They wanted to take him to the academy in Buenos Aires to train him up, make him a, a runner, possibly an Olympic runner representing Argentina. Went home, and his mother said, nope, you're not doing that. So my father grew up doing what other people wanted him to do instead of pursuing his heart. So when I am born, um, and you know, I've learned in life that if you don't deal with your heart, your heart will eventually deal with you. And so when I am born, he sees me first and foremost as a potential project to fulfill his unfulfilled dreams through me. So um, now it's important to understand my father comes from a, a very sort of like humble background in Argentina which means that his life was all about upstaging himself and moving up the ladder of society. Uh, he did that successfully through various means and ways and sources. Uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, he had these unfulfilled dreams. So I was also like him, extremely good uh, at soccer. But my father had other ideas because of the sort of like the trying to move up the ladder. So he chose tennis for me. I never liked tennis. Uh, but obviously, this is what I was told I had to do. So I began to play tennis and I became very, very good very early on. Uh, within a year of playing, when I was nine, I became the number one in the country. I became top five in the world in that age group. Um, and I won pretty much everything that I played. Uh, then became 11, so I had to move up uh, to the next age group. And of course, when you move up, you're always the younger one in the age group. So you're playing players that are better than you. I also won several uh, events on that. Uh, and so mm, my then coach, in his wisdom, said, let's move him up another age group to really try and push him. Naturally, I now was playing kids that were three years older than me. And at that age, three years of tennis makes a big difference to your performance. So I began to get beaten. And the first day that I, uh, I got beaten, uh, now, before I tell you what happened then, it's important to understand that every time I won, I could sense my father's pride, his smile, his celebrations. He would present me to his friends, 
I was in the newspaper, in the you know national newspapers, reporting my exploits on the tennis court. And I was shown uh, a great deal of love and appreciation and even affirmation and attention. But when I lost so that I, day... Well, yeah. I was just about to ask. I was just about to ask. Maybe that's where you're headed. So it's all, all fine and dandy when you win, but what happens when you lose? Right. I'm about to tell you that. It's not pretty. Perfect. Okay. So that day I lose. My father, normally when I won at the end of the match, he would be waiting for me just at the gate when you come out of the tennis court with a huge smile, ready to hug me and pick me up. But instead, there is no smile and he's not waiting there. So I go out and I'm trying to find him. And he's by the entrance to the complex telling me, you know, to come over with his fingers. I come over. So I kind of go, oh, dad, hey, did you watch the match? And he goes, shut up. Let's go to the car. So, you know, I, I obviously did what I was told. When we get to the car, um, he basically throws me into the car, right, and begins to shout at me. Uh, and amongst one of the things he says to me is, you know, you need to understand that you're either the way I want you to be or I'd rather see you dead. Now, I'm nine years old when this is happening, yeah? Nine and a half, ten years old. Uh, around their ten. Yeah, between nine and eleven years old. I, I'm a kid. Yeah, I'm a little kid. Well, it doesn't matter what age uh, you are. That's not easy to hear. No, but, you know, especially when you're little. Now, obviously, I got smacked a few times. I was asked a million questions every time that I attempted to answer a question you know, the next one was asked. Eventually, we get to the house. We lived in a house that was, you know, had a big wall in front of it. So we went in through the garage door. The garage door closed. He grabs me from the car, grabs me, and he throws me, I don't know, probably like uh, three, four meters in the air. So I land on the ground. I'm crying by now because I still can't understand what I've done wrong. You see, I, I've just lost the tennis match, so I, I, I don't. I wasn't naughty. I didn't insult anybody. I didn't steal anything. I didn't skip school. You know, it was just I lost the tennis match. So my mother, by that time, comes to the door to ask what's wrong. My father is totally enraged, and he's running to his room. He grabs a leather belt, and by that time, I've gone into my room and I'm hiding under my bed. He takes me out of from under my bed, and he starts to beat the hell out of me with the belt. He kicks me, he punches me, he hits me to the point where I can begin to no longer breathe. My mother gets, tries to get involved. He grabs my mother, throws her out of the room and he keeps beating me. Eventually he gets fired. So he has to go. I, I can barely, you know, stand up. I, I can't even stand up. I can barely breathe. So I, I move out. I go under the bed again. He returns, you know, he gets a second win, beats me some more. And then eventually, you know, he runs out of energy and he leaves. And I spend the rest of the day under my bed trying to recover from this beating. So this happened several times over, you know. So I made an agreement that day with life that if you want to be loved, you have to win. And you have to somehow do what is expected of you. So now, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to overstep any boundaries in the questions I'm asking. So you can cut me off at any point. But yeah, sure. um, was there any like so after round one of this? I mean, can was there any? Uh, how do I ask this? D did your dad come back and acknowledge, "Hey, I got a little heated in there"? Was there <laughs> any like? Was there any remorse, or is this just, you know? 
all right, get back out here. Let's go go to the court and play. And go win yeah, I, I think any- you need. To, yeah, I think you need to throw the net a little bit further than that. You see, the problem is that when I failed, he saw his dreams crumbling away again. Right, right, right. And so when he was beating me, he was really beating himself, uh, and and beating the pain that he he had experienced because he was never able to pursue his heart. How long? Um, how long? How many years of processing did it take for you to understand that perspective? Oh, gosh. Well, the problem is that then I put my hand up in a church later on and I became a religious Christian. I never really I never really met Jesus. You know, I didn't I didn't meet the resurrected Christ. I met a man called Jesus. But yeah, I can tell you that later in the story. Uh, It it, it has taken I mean, I was 11. uh, I'm now 49. (laughs) So I think you probably can do your math. Taken some time. Yeah, it's taken a long time because you see, then what happened was when I was uh, 12, 13, um, my father, in his wisdom, he, he sent me to America because he said that that was better for my tennis. And so I went to live with my grandparents that happened to be there. And I lived with them for a year and a half. And then at 14 and a half, I left. I went to live in tennis academies and uh, I lived in friends' houses, and when my father took me to America at uh, 13, he said to me, uh, when we were waiting in the hotel before my grandfather was coming to pick me up to take me to his house, he said to me, Pablo, you've got an amazing opportunity in front of you. If you have to go back home, you'll be a failure the rest of your life. So I said to, of course, at 13, said, don't worry, Dad, I'm going to make you proud. I'm going to make it. I'm going to become a, a, a world professional tennis player. I'm going to make it big time, and you're going to be proud of me. I'm not going to be a failure. So my life became about pretending to be successful, about pretending to be somebody that essentially I was not, because I did achieve a great degree of success in tennis, even though I didn't like it. But I was never, ever at the levels of expectation that were placed upon me. And so the problem was that with every year that went by in America, I moved to a different school, different set of friends, different environment. And at night, when I turned my light off, all I wanted was my mom and dad. Instead, I got a cold, empty, dark room, wherever it was that I was sleeping, you know? Did your um, did your grandma ever recognize oh i i hmm. so earlier part of the story a lot of the pressure or a lot of the things that your dad wanted to do he couldn't because your grandma basically didn't let that happen or his mom didn't let that happen and then some of a lot of the pressure well sounds like almost all the pressure that fell onto you was what he wanted you to be because he never could get there was there any relationship with your grandma to you or your grandma to your dad on the pressure on you that makes sense? No, no. Yeah, no, not at all. My grandmother lived in Argentina. We were living in Peru. So I saw my grandmother maybe three times in her whole oh, life. Okay, got it. So there was so, no, no, there was no real connection there. And they were, they, we were in different countries altogether. Got it. Okay. But I would, I have no doubt if my grandmother would have heard about it, she would have probably endorsed it because that's how she raised him. Right. Makes sense. You know, this is, you know, this sort of, for example, this thing about, uh, you know, I'd rather see you dead if you're not the way I want you to be. She said that to him. Right. So, so he was just, you know, this is what happens in life. You know, when, if you don't, if God doesn't heal your wounds, you end up bleeding on people that didn't cut you. And he was just bleeding on me, you know? Sure, sure. So, so um, you're, uh, you're, you're 15, 16, traveling the country. 
playing at all these different tennis camps. But Traveling the world, actually. I mean, I was playing in the U.S. Open juniors. You know, I was playing at a high level. My contemporaries in tennis at the time were Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, Jim Courier, Michael Chang, you know, those guys. I mean, those are the kind of guys I was playing against at the same level. So I was actually very good. But the problem was that, you know, I didn't have the resources of the training these people had. And I was just getting by with whoever and wherever they would take me uh, because I had a limited amount of money coming in, um, you know, and I tried to make the best that I could. So my life became about pretending to be somebody else. Even my name, my name is actually Juan Pablo. But when I got to America, Juan Pablo was very long. And so the kids started calling me either Juan or Pablo. Now I hate Juan. So I kind of went a little bit to Pablo. So I began my quest to build a false identity uh, in order to be loved and, and to be given attention very early on in my life, which normally doesn't really happen until we, you know, we get past 20, 21, where we begin to actually face you know, adulthood, that we begin to do that. So I was forced to do that much earlier than a lot of people. So I became really good at and reinventing myself depending on who I was in front of and how I needed to impress them in order to get whatever I needed just to stay in America and not go back home so I would be a failure. Now, um, you know, obviously I was incredibly dysfunctional um, in, my, uh, in, my, uh, in my upbringing. And so, you know, we, we often attract the kind of people that we, you know, the, the people with similar wounding to us. Um, and so I went to college. Uh, I had a scholarship in tennis because obviously my father changed his mind and said, okay, maybe you're not going to be a professional, so you go to college. And that's where I met my first wife, a British girl that was there as an exchange student. I was uh, 18. And uh, obviously, again, I was in college because my father wanted me to, not because I wanted. But by then, I was beginning to obviously you know, get some sort of independence from him. I was 18 years old, coming to 19. And uh, it was through all the suffering that I was doing, you know, I had already become involved with drugs. I was doing coke. I was smoking pot. Um, I was, um, you know, I was doing a lot of things that obviously I'm not proud of. I wasn't proud. I'm not proud of the people I got associated with, some of the things I did. But I was just trying to find relief from the pain, the suffering, the rejection, the abandonment that I, I felt every day I woke up, you know. Um, and, uh, and so I went outside a church somewhere in South Florida. I don't remember where it was. I remember it was a church because it had a crucifix on the top of it. And um, I went outside. I was in a, in a Jeep. And I said to God, I said, God, um, you know, uh, if you're real, uh, which I believe you are, but if you're interested in my life and you want to be part of it, you know, I, I have things I would like to do with my life. And, you know, if you want to help me, then I, I want to I wanna get to know you. Turned my Jeep off, went, uh, went back home where I was staying and uh, forgot about it. Two weeks later, I find myself in my second year of university. And um, these three friends of mine were rooming together. So I went to see them, you know, to see how their summer was. And uh, go in and, you know, having a beer with them, talking. And then I, I say to them, who's the fourth guy? And they say, oh, you don't, you don't want to talk to him. You know, really weird guy. He's always talking about Jesus and he's gay. So I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, 
I, I didn't really think much of it, you know, uh, at the time I was like, okay, no problem. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm friends with you guys. So, you know, I'm, it doesn't make any difference to me who he is or what he is. So, um, a couple of days go by and then I come back and I knock on the door to look for them again. And this guy opens the door that they had warned me about. So his name is Al and he says, hi, I'm Al. I said, oh, well, how you doing? I'm Pablo. He says, uh, I said, I'm looking for my friends, uh, you know, Gambi, Ron, Tom. Are they here? No, no, they've gone out shopping for groceries. They'll be back in a bit. You want to come in? And I said, okay, yeah, I'll come in. So I go in and I sit down and, you know, we start talking. And I can see the guy's gay. And he starts to talk to me about Jesus, you know. And the weird thing was... And I had not been doing any drugs that day. I hadn't drank. You know, I was sober. Uh, he's, he looks at me and he goes, um, you know, he's, he starts talking to me about Jesus. And all of a sudden, I sense this thing say to me, you've called me. Here I am. And I freaked out. You know, I was like, okay. So I said to him, Al, let my friends know I was, <laughs> I was by. I'm out of here, dude. I got things to do. And I left. I really left very quickly. So the next two weeks, Matt, everywhere I went in that, and it wasn't a little university, okay? It wasn't a junior college in the middle of America. I mean, this was a proper division one university. Everywhere I went, this guy, Al, was there. So if I went to the library, I went to the most remote corner of the library, he was there. I went to uh, the restaurant, you know, the, the cafeteria to eat, he was there. I went to the bathroom. He was there. He was everywhere, you know? So after two weeks of this, I'm like, dude, I think you're chasing me, man. Stop following me. And he's like, he's laughing. He says, oh, well, I was thinking the same thing about you. I said, well, I'm telling you, I said, I'm definitely not following you, dude. So I said to him, but you know, I can't believe everywhere I go, you're here. So he goes, I know, maybe God wants us to talk. So I'm like, ah, oh, dude, really? I said, I don't think so, man. I think it's just, you know, it's just happening like that. You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe not everybody's back from summer holiday and it's just a few of us around here. You know, I was trying to avoid it. Anyways, eventually I, I one thing led to another and I, and I sat down to talk to him, you know, and he started telling me this, that, and the other. And I started listening. And then he invites me to church in Miami uh, and he goes to a black Pentecostal church. Okay. Now, you got to understand that up until that stage, my only experience of church was the Catholic Church in South America, where, you know, everyone looks constipated throughout the whole service. You know, I mean, this, there's no, nobody moves, nobody laughs. I mean, it is literally like a funeral, this thing. So here you are, here you are meeting uh, what has been described to you as a guy who all he does is talk about Jesus. He's gay. Yeah. He's yeah. theoretically been following you on campus, bringing you to, uh, you said, a black Pentecostal church in Miami? Yeah, he brings me to this church, and I, re I will never forget the first time I went in there, dude. I, I mean, nothing, we walked in the like middle. Nothing like a welcome home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I walk in, and there is these guys that were in the middle of worship because we were a little late. And I'm like saying to Al, I said, Al, where have you brought me? And he said, this is my church. I said, dude, this is not a church. This is a party. And he says to me, no, no, no. He says, this is my church, Pablo. And I said to him, okay, if you say so, you know, and this is your church. So I started attending the church, you know, and uh, by that time I had met this English girl. So she started coming with me, you know, just to sort of like come out of curiosity. 
Um, and then one Sunday, um, you know, the pastor makes an altar call. And he says, you know, at the end, he says, if you guys want Jesus to come into your life, we would like you to put your hand up. So I'm like sitting next to Al and I can see Al keeps looking at me. You know, we're all supposed to have our eyes closed, but he keeps looking at me and looking down at his feet and looking at me and looking down at his feet. So I said to him, Al, I said, I want to ask you a question. I said, I'm thinking of putting my hand up, but I just want to understand something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? He said, I said to him, well, I says, the guy said that if I want Jesus to come in my life, I need to put my hand up, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So where is Jesus now if I don't put my hand up? Because you see, I was raised with conditional love. Yeah, if you did X, Y, and Z, you were loved and given attention. But if you were not doing X, Y, and Z, then you were not loved and given the attention. So I said, so, so God is like my dad then. He loves me if I do certain things and joins my journey. But if I don't, then he doesn't, right? And he goes, oh, we can talk about that later. Just put your hand up. So I put my hand up. Did anything by happen? The way, by the way, by the way. Real quick, yeah. like, I love Al's response to that. Like, details don't matter. Details don't matter. Just trust. Just follow him. Just trust. I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad you did. Yeah, I did. Well, I did because I was desperate to find something or someone that loved me, you know. And uh, But the problem of what I did that day, Matt, is I took the face of my father and I put it over the face of God. And then... Instead of trying to work really hard to keep my dad smiling, I started working really hard for God to start loving me. And my life became about managing my behavior and my sin, basically. I never entertained the wounding in my heart. Uh, that was never dealt with. Um, uh, you know, my, my addictions that I had run to for many years to try and ease and numb the pain that I had within me, they were never addressed, you know, uh, because the people that I went to church with and that I had around me, I saw how they were on a Monday and I saw how they were on a Sunday. You know, the minute they pulled into the parking lot of the church, they were miraculously transformed into saints. Yeah, and then when they left the parking lot of the church, it was like the transformation left, you know? So there was like a, there was like this, this wave of holiness over the building of the church and the parking lot that it obviously, you know, people got intercepted by uh, when they went in. And so to me, there was a lot of hypocrisy that I saw, but I went along with it because I thought that was just part of, you know, religion and pretending to be okay and pretending to be clean and pretending to be holy when in reality, I knew better than no one was. Now, I, uh, I from there moved to the UK and uh, I, 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 I go there to, to race cars because I come from a family of race car drivers. My mother's my mother's father was a, a very successful rally driver. My father had actually done some rallying. And that was something that I also wanted to do as a child, but I was never allowed to because, you know, of different reasons. And so I thought, well, I'm done with university. I don't want to finish that. I'm done with tennis. You know, now I got Jesus. Jesus can help me to become a racing driver. And so I moved to the UK. I went traveling with my grandfather around Europe for a month and a half. And then I, um, you know, I, I ended up coming to the UK. Um, in the UK, I met up with my then girlfriend. I got her pregnant. Um, we got married. 
And so I'm now 20, I uh, have a daughter on the way, and I'm trying to become a racing driver. Obviously, my racing dreams didn't go very far because, of course, I had to work to support my baby that was coming soon and my new wife. And so I got a job as a tennis coach um, in the middle of England where I remained uh, for a number of years. Then I moved down to an island called the Channel Island, uh, Jersey in the Channel Islands. And I was very successful as a club coach. But the problem was, again, my marriage was a product of two people trying to recreate the domestic environment that they never had as children. My ex-wife was just as dysfunctional, as wounded as I was, because she had left home at nine years old. And she had been sent to a boarding school in the UK with where a lot of things happened to her that were not exactly, you know, pretty nor fun. So we were very wounded people. We had both put our hands up. Um, we were trying to relate with one another while broken. Um, my attempts to know Jesus were a lot more real than hers. You know, the, 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 the hand going up, I, I took it, I think it meant a lot more to me than it did to her, at least on face value. And so I, I kept pursuing this Jesus that I, I found him to be extremely, you know, difficult person. I found him to be very hard going. And I felt that I had to work very hard in order to just have his attention and, 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 and to really keep him in my life. Um, let's see, I'm in Jersey, the Channel Islands. Um, my second child comes along, Jake, my son. Um, and then by, you know, the early 2000s, I begin to realize that something is its very wrong. You know, I know I'm, I can see that I'm not in love with my wife. I'm not happy. I can see that I'm in a relationship where I have to say yes when I really want to say no. And I say no when I want to say yes, just to keep people happy. I'm still doing what I, I'm still living the false identity. I'm still living, trying to make other people happy. Now it's, it's God and my ex-wife. Before that, it was my friends. You know, I would allow people to take things from me, use my things. All the time, I'm working really hard just to be loved. And so I, um, I realize it's not going anywhere. So, uh, you know, we begin to come apart. Um, I then get a job working in the, in the professional tennis, uh, women's tennis circuit. And... You know, I see that as an opportunity to, to get out. Um, the marriage uh, eventually comes to a divorce. And I start traveling in the world tour, and I actually start doing really well there. You know, I start training uh, professional girls, top 100 in the world. Uh, my first client, I pick her up when she's 110, 120 in the world. By the time I finish with her, she's 30. Uh, the next one uh, I pick up when she's 80, I leave her at 16. And the last one I worked with, I picked her up at 82. And she got up to number seven in the world. So I become very successful at doing this. But the problem is, you know, that I'm, I'm traveling uh, for 40 weeks a year. I have no home. I go backwards and forwards to see my kids in South Africa because that's where they are with their mother because my ex-wife is from there. Um, and... Um, and it is in one of those years uh, that I am inside an airplane and I have a breakdown. Uh, I'm in a midnight overnight flight. Um, and, uh, you know, I come to the end of myself. I come to the end of this God I'm trying to please. 
uh, I go to the back, uh, to the cubicle in the back of the plane. I go in there, I break down, I cry for a long time. I tell God, I know I can't swear in your program, but I, I, I basically tell him to F off. I'm sick and tired of him. I'm sick and tired of his religion. I'm sick and tired of these, you know, false Christians that pretend to be one thing, but are another, you know, I'm tired of people, uh, you know, playing the game. Uh, I'm tired of trying to figure out. I said to God, you're schizophrenic. I'm schizophrenic. You know, we have this relationship. When I do things good, you bless me. When I don't do things good, you don't bless me. And I all intents and purposes, I told God to get lost and I was done with him. I recover from this episode. I go back to my seat. And for the first time in my life, I felt loved and at peace. Now, this didn't make any sense to me. because <laughs> must have been, been a nice flight attendant, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. Because for the first time, you know, I was actually trying to work through these seven steps to a, and a more intimate relationship with God that this preacher had written. So I thought maybe one of the steps it says to tell God to F off, and I've done that, and that's why this is working now. So I went back and looked through that. I honestly, genuinely thought this is the kind of life I was leading. And, uh, you know, this, this account is in more detail in my first book, Holding On Loosely. Um, if people are interested in finding more details about it, because I'm trying to rush through it. Um, but I don't find that. So it was very strange to me that for the first time, you know, because I thought I'm getting rid of God. But now as I look back, I realize that what I got rid of and where I thought it was the end of my life, it was actually the beginning of my life. And what I got rid of was this false God that I had created in my mind that was made in my image, my dysfunctional image, as opposed to allowing the God that created me in his image to woo me back into an unconditional loving relationship with him where he would heal me and set me free. So what then follows from there goes, I, I, I instead of putting my hand up and shaking hands with a man called Jesus, I experience the embrace of the resurrected Christ. Uh, and that began a journey now, which has been going for over 15 years, um, of healing, deliverance. I now realize Jesus never came to tell us our life finishes. He came to tell us our life begins. And in that episode on that airplane, my life began. Uh, I began to actually access my heart. I began to deal with the wounded in my heart. And my heart began to come alive. And, you know, as the Bible says, that life begins in the heart. So I now began to discover my true identity in Christ, the, the person that God had in mind. You know, that first Peter 3, the hidden person of the heart. I began to discover that, that person. And I began to realize that what I had been doing is I had been trying to build this other identity to try and get what was already within me all along. I just didn't know about it. You know, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is within you uh, in Aramaic. And it's, it's, you know, it's right here right now. And so I, I, be, I it's almost like I found a treasure within myself. And can so, can I ask a quick question? Yeah, just so, of course. Um, you, uh, when you raised your hand, uh, volume one, uh, way back when, sitting next to Al, you know, you you, you asked him the question, and he said, "We'll have that follow up. Uh, we'll have that follow up conversation later." Did you ever have that follow up conversation with him? We talked about it, but the problem was, here's a guy who's a practicing homosexual, 
right? And he is, he is basically, you know, telling me to put my hand up. So I'm seeing the lifestyle that he leads in private, and I'm seeing the way he behaves when we go to church, right? And so for me, you know, that's where I realize, okay, so when we're here, we pretend this. I put my hand up. I pretend this whole thing. And when we're away from here, well, whatever happens, happens, and whatever goes, goes, you know? So it was really difficult for me to reconcile what I was hearing at the front, watching him live. And I also knew how I was living, you know, which I wasn't judging anybody because I thought, well, this is the way life is for me. So there was never really a, a, a conversation where we, you know, where we talked. I mean, he did express to me that, you know, following God was following Jesus was very hard because your life was supposed to be according to the way that people said it was supposed to be. You know, you, you, you help the old ladies cross the street. You don't swear. You go to church on Sunday. You read your Bible. You pray. You don't look at the wrong websites, even though back then we didn't have any websites because there was no internet. So I guess back then you didn't pick up the wrong magazines when you went into 7-Eleven. You didn't look at certain shelves, you know, you didn't sleep around, you didn't do drugs. So you didn't do anything, basically, you know. And that was one of my complaints in the plane. You know, I said to God, God, when I was uh, supposedly a sinner, at least I had fun when I did things. You know, now I can't even have fun when I do something wrong because I feel eternally guilty that you're going to somehow punish me and you're going to sort of shortchange me because I didn't measure up to the expectations that you have of me. Um, and so, you know, my life since that day in the airplane was amazingly changed. Uh, you've met me. You've seen the, the man that I am today. I don't pretend to be perfect, but I do believe in the perfection that I have within me, my true identity in Christ that is created in his image, nature and likeness. Um, and so for me, it's no longer about becoming something that I'm not, as I was trying to do in volume one, to use your terminology. For me, it's about discovering who I already am in him. And that gives me a rest that I don't have to somehow improve myself. My life is no longer about sin management or behavioral modification, right? My life now is about discovering. It's about being a student, being curious, and understanding each day a little bit better and a little bit more how much and how well God loves me. And it's that love that is changing me, is healing me, and is delivering me for many of the things that for years I try to overcome through effort and discipline but the problem is I didn't realize back then what I realize now is that whatever you give your focus, you energize and empower over you. So while I was trying to focus on staying away from sin and hell, I was empowering those two things over me. Today, I focus on the love of God. I empower that over me. And that, because it's so real and it can do for us when nothing else can, and that relationship that we have in that love, then I am able to somehow, you know, leave behind those other things that promise much but deliver little by the end of my uh, time in the tour i met my second wife which is a wonderful uh, jewish believer who i i was very fortunate to meet uh, i i got married with her i uh, i have had i've had two beautiful girls with her and today i live in tel aviv in israel um there's a couple of other things uh, just to go in line with a few of the questions that you asked um after I leave the tour, um, I kept working in tennis for a bit longer, uh, but then I tore my Achilles tendon uh, on an accident on the court. And 
that obviously took eight months to heal. As I started to heal with that, my, my son, Jake, who by this stage was 18, um, was diagnosed with a stage three uh, blood cancer. And, um, and he was living in South Africa. So it was during a visit that I was there that it was discovered. Um, and though the doctors told me that there was a good chance that he would make it, the, the chemotherapy that they were gonna administer to him was of course uh, very, very, very powerful and that that itself could kill him. So I had to spend the next seven months every day knowing that I could get a text message telling me that I'm not gonna make it, which was very difficult. But God was tremendously, tremendously present and enabled me. And it's the reality of my experience with God is so real um, that, of course, it made a substantial difference to how I handled that, uh, that, those moments that I had to live through. I will never forget going back to South Africa for his last two chemotherapy, chemotherapy treatments and uh, the the, you know, the doctor, the oncologist has said to me, you know, the last two are the worst. You know, he's going to lose all his hair, his eyelashes, his eyebrows, everything. I mean, he's going to look like he's just born, no hair. And uh, he's going to literally look like death. Um, and we will stop just before he dies with the treatment. So I go back to South Africa to surprise him, to be with him, to support him for the last two treatments. And so the first thing I do is I go to a, a Moroccan barber to shave my hair off because of course you know he has no hair so you know the moroccan looks at me and he goes sir have you lost the bet i said i wish i said to him that i was doing this because i lost the bet i said no i said i'm doing this to support my son who's not doing very well at the moment anyways i shaved off completely all my hair and i called my son and i said hey jake i'm here I'm, i've come to oh he says you know he was very emotional that i was there and um I, uh, I show up at the house, I knock on the door, he opens the door and he's got hair growing on his head. <laughs> uh. So, so he, lo he looks at me and he goes, Dad, he says, you lose a bet? And I says to him, I says to him no. I said, I'm a, I feel like an idiot. I says, you know, I, I thought you had no hair. He goes, yeah, but my hair started growing two weeks ago. I didn't tell you. So, you know, it was through things like that, that God showed not only his presence, but also showed that he was really in control of the whole thing. Uh, he was successfully, you know, uh, he was told that he was clear and he's now nearly five years clear, thank God. Praise the Lord. Uh, That's yeah, amen. Now, no soon I find out that he's been sick and that he's better. Uh, no soon I find out he's, he's better, that, he, you know, everything is gone. That same afternoon, I discovered that another family member very close to me, that she has cancer. And so I have to go through another eight months after the eight months with my seven months with my son through that. And that becomes another year and another year and a half. And I'm grateful to, to tell you that that person, too, is completely healed and doing really well. And now three years on all clear. So, you know, I had, yeah, man, I had, I had four very trying years, um, you know, after I left the, the tennis tour, uh, my whole life was radically turned upside down, but it was during the, that time that I actually experienced the greatest amount of healing and, and, and deliverance, uh, you know, and I did all of that on my own here between God and I, because here in Israel, it isn't until recently that I've been able to, I, I, I couldn't attend the church simply because there wasn't one to attend. 
that I feel comfortable in. And uh, so for over 10 years, or actually for 13 years of, of, of these last 15 years, I have not really attended church. So my relationship with God has had to be real or otherwise I probably wouldn't be speaking to you from all that I've gone through. Uh, but it has been on that isolation and solitude that I've discovered my God. You know, God is my God. He's not the pastor's God. He's not your God, Matt. He's not my wife's God. He's not my parents' God. He's my God. And I trust my experience with my God to such that, you know, I am extremely open guy, as you saw when you met me, but I am convinced of what I believe and I am convinced of what I've experienced, um, mainly because I didn't have anyone else to interfere or, or to bounce ideas with. I've had people I've spoken to, of course, in America. I have a few friends that I confide in, but I've largely had to discover God on my own without any real outside influence, you know, and I got to tell you that it's been the most amazing journey that I have ever, ever been in. Today, I run a very successful uh, retreat, you know, tour company here in Israel where, you know, I invite people to come here for 10 days on spiritual retreats and I take them to see, you know, I use the discoveries of archaeology to invite them to do archaeology of their hearts with Jesus. Uh, and I see amazing healings, deliverances, transformations, and awakenings happening. And then on top of that, I, <clears throat> I have the privilege of, you know, journeying and coaching people all over the world through the internet, you know, with their personal lives, their professional lives, uh, just their personal and spiritual development. Um, and those are my sort of main two areas of focus uh, of where I, I spend my time now, you know, really like sharing the discoveries that I have made uh, in the last, you know, 15, 16 years that I've been walking with the resurrected Christ. So that's a little bit about me. <laughs> Which the story is amazing, unbelievable, highs and lows. I mean, just just insane, intense stuff. And, you know, faith, obviously, and we talked about this, faith is important to me. And just hearing your story is just insane and just I mean, a true testament of God can find anybody and is willing to walk with people as well, too. So that's powerful stuff. I guess my, my so I think of all the questions that I like to ask or I, I ask kind of throughout, I think you've touched on just about every single one. The one that I'm truly most excited to ask you, though, is through the world travels you've done, the different perspectives you've had, the basically cage that you were in with trying to, uh, you know, be accepted by your father, which probably no matter what you did, you never were going to, and then trying to create this acceptance of this God who you thought was viewing you the same way your father was to, you know, all these different things you've been through at the end of the day, knowing who you are now, what is the impact that you want to leave on, on people? So say you only get to do, say you only get to smoke one cigar with somebody and you get 30, 45 minutes with them, or you get to do a 30 minute podcast with somebody, or you only get to spend an hour with somebody at tops and you get to pick the impact you have on them. What impact do you want that to be? That God loves them as they are, not as they should be wrap it up, put a bow on it. And that's it, man. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I think one of the biggest problems with religion is religion is all about you. Faith is about Jesus. And, um, you know, um, religion, it does a great job in preventing us from discovering the very thing where the relationship with Christ is meant to take place. And that's our heart. 
you know, because of one misquoted verse on the Bible in Jeremiah, we have negated all the other 800 and something verses where God addresses our heart. And, you know, the heart is the thing that God speaks about the most. Uh, and the problem with us is we think we either live from our minds or our hearts. And the reality is we can actually, you know, integrate both of those together as long as life begins in the heart and not the mind. You know, the Bible is very clear about that. And uh, for me, you know, I realize as I look back now that I thought God would love me only if I was the way that he expected me to be. Today, I am I'm a rest. I experience the rest of Hebrews 11 because I understand that I am loved as I am and that God's love is never changing. It doesn't really change according to where or at what stage of our journey we are in of walking with him. His love is the same before we put our hand up. And by the way, I don't believe God only joined us where we put our hand up because that would mean that life is possible to be lived outside of God, in which case God is not God. I believe God is the only one that is capable of sustaining life. And the Bible tells us that in him we move and have our being and there's no condition attached to that. So, you know, I, I realized that that is grace, that God was part of my journey all along. I just was never aware of it until I began to wake up and I began to see what I was always there, but I couldn't. You know, a little bit like the temple curtain. When the temple curtain gets torn in half, suddenly something new appears on the inside, on the other side, is new to us because we could never see it, but it's not new. It was always there. And I think it's a little bit of what happens when we, you know, discover who Christ is, what he did on the cross, you know, to enable us to be able to see how, how, how God loves us and how well he loves us and who God really is. You know, Jesus didn't come to change our minds about God. He, sorry, he didn't come to change, you know, God's mind about us. He came to change our minds about him. Uh, and so, you know, to help us understand and see that he is not this big, bad, hairy guy in the sky with a big stick looking to hit people on the head, you know. That is, uh, I think, just an amazing spot to end and wrap the, you know, wrap it up because I, I that's just special stuff to me. It hits home for sure. Um, Pablo, I want to give you a chance. Uh, is there anything else you want to leave uh, leave the listeners with? Uh, no, I just want to thank you for the opportunity. I hope that it's helpful what I've shared, you know, and that uh, if people are interested in discovering more about my life and the work I do, uh, you know, I've got a few websites which you can list on your uh, on your. Yeah, when uh, we when we post the podcast, I'll link up. I know, yeah, you got your a couple of books on there, and I'll, I'll we'll. Yeah, them. and I've written a couple of books, so you know. But no, I mean, absolutely not. I mean, I'm happy to end it there too. Not a problem. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. This was amazing. All right, my friend. Thank you for having me.